Um, I, want you, I want you to start this morning by closing your eyes. I know that's a little strange, but once in a while we'll do that. Just close your eyes, and I want you to try to think and remember back to the first time that you heard the gospel in a way that made sense to you. Right? Not all of us had that moment where we became a Christian. Many of us just kind of walked with him. But there's that point that you can remember where the gospel made sense, where someone told or shared the good news of Christ with you, and it just clicked. Who was that person? Was it a pastor? Was it a friend? Was it a family member? Was it a fellow church member? Was it someone in your school or in college or at a workplace? Think back to that time. And then just raise your hand if it was someone other, if someone other than a pastor was instrumental in bringing you to faith. All right, open your eyes and look around. It's not a super personal question. <laughs> it's okay to raise your hands. There are many of you who, who that's your reality and your truth. See, I, I came to Christ through the help of some wonderful leaders. We had a great pastor at the church that I was, that I was growing up in, and he preached the word beautifully every single Sunday. But it wasn't the person who I really, in the end, heard the gospel from. It was a combination of people, really one or two that I could say stuck out to me. But neither one of them were pastoral ministry oriented people. They were just folks in the church who, who took the vested interest to, you know, to talk to me. And you've heard my story of, of some specific folks who wrestled with my questions over the years. But if I had to go back and go, who are the people that really spoke the truth of the gospel into my life? It wasn't a pastor. He might have played one part, but it wasn't the main part. As a matter of fact, I, I sat through most church services until Jesus made sense to me. I really didn't listen to the sermons in church. Maybe that's you. Maybe you come here. Maybe your, your parents make you come here or your spouse makes you come here and you sit here every week and you just, you don't care about what I have to say. I have news for you. That's okay. I'm not hurt or offended by it. But maybe that's, maybe that's you or maybe at one point that was you. There are people in our lives that preach the good news of the gospel to us outside of those that are standing up front in, in a sense of professional ministry calling. And it's important for us to understand that because today we're going to look at Paul's call on Timothy to preach the word. Right? There's, a, there's a spot in 2 Timothy 4 where he gets really, really fo focused like a laser and he tells Timothy that he is to preach the word of God. And he tells him how to do it and why to do it. And that's what we're looking at today. And it's important to do this. It's a great exercise. So I thought what we would do as, as the call is to preach that maybe I would just have a random person in the church get up and preach instead of me this morning. So look under your seats. No, I'm kidding. I'm not, not going to do that. That would be great, though, wouldn't it? Like, it's like Oprah, but you don't get anything good. You have to come up and on the spot. No, here's, here's the thing. Um, we're talking about preaching this morning, and, and there's a distinguishment we have to make. Um, not every Christian is called to preach the word. That, that word preaching is a very specific thing. In scripture we see over and over again, there are people that are set apart to preach the word. And it's not set apart in a greater way. Like I, I am called in my calling as your pastor to be somebody who preaches the word. And when I passed my exams, the presbytery, they set me apart to do that. That doesn't mean elevated me above anybody. It's just set apart, right? Some of you are set apart to be doctors and lawyers, or salesmen, or nurses, right? 
I'm set apart to preach. There is an element of preaching of God's word that is its own thing. Not everyone is called to preach, but we are all called to be proclaimers of the word, to teach the word. Right? And so when we hear the principles that we're talking about in Timothy today, it's important that we think about that. While he says these things to Timothy as a set-apart preacher, the principles that guide what he's saying still apply to us. Right? I don't want you to hear every one of you needs to become a pulpit preacher at the end of this. Right? The last church I had, there was a, a, this pulpit in the fellowship hall that was on wheels. and I never knew why it existed, but I always thought it'd be cool to like wheel it around town. And like preach from the pulpit somewhere in the random town square. I don't know why. I just, I, if nothing else, I'd make a funny video. But we're not all called to do that. I'm not going to hand you some mobile pulpit and send you out and go, tomorrow when you get to your job, you have to get on a soapbox and just to, no. But we are called to teach. And so this morning as we look at this text in Timothy, um, he, he has some very clear instructions about exactly what that looks like. And we can glean from that one of the things that we ought to encompass in our lives as followers of Christ. So, so let's read together through the whole thing and then we'll, this is one of those days where we go verse by verse and we just expository our way through it. Uh, so here we go. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All right, there's a wad in here. Let's just go slowly verse by verse. Number one, the first verse is, is this intro to the charge. Um, sometimes in scripture, we're told to kind of do something. Sometimes in scripture, we're suggested to do something through maybe a parable, right? We read a parable of the rich young ruler, and it suggests how we ought to spend time with our wealth and what we ought to do with it. Sometimes we're charged to do something with such seriousness and gravity that we can't ignore it. And this is one of those times. Here's what it says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I'd love to use this when I want, like, my kid when he grows up and I want him to clean his room. Can you imagine that? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to clean your room. <laughs> oh, okay, Dad. <laughs> Maybe do that today with your, with your spouse if there's something you really want him to do. Maybe not. And then next week you can come to marriage counseling. Right? But, but this is a serious thing. Paul is saying a couple of very specific things here. Number one, he invokes the presence of, the, of God, both Father and Son. He's saying, listen, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ. This phrase might sound a little familiar. <clears throat> when you've ever been to a wedding, what do we say? We've come together in the presence of God, or in, in, in the sight of God and in the presence of all these witnesses. Right? There's a weight to it. 
You're about to make a vow, and it's not just the two of you standing here promising each other romantic, sappy stuff. You're making a vow, and by the way, God is present and watching, and so are all these witnesses. That's why we invite all our friends and family to weddings. It's not just for the party, right? Because we want to make a vow in front of the witnesses, but especially in front of God, right? When you've gotten married, it's been a vow between you, your spouse, and the Lord himself. There's three people there, not two. The pastor's just officiating the whole thing, right? He just says the words. But he says, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. So number one, he's saying, Timothy, I'm going to charge you to do something here. God and the Son, the Father and Son together, are watching this happen. They're seeing this. This is a charge that's not just coming to you for me. This isn't a, hey, I really think this is how you should operate in your ministry. But this is a command almost from God himself. It's coming through my lips, but he's the one up there. And he's making it known. He's present. That gives weight. This isn't just a suggestion. Second, he reminds Timothy that Christ is going to judge and hold Timothy to account. For all of us, this should be a sobering reminder. He's saying, I'm about to give you this charge. God and the Father and Son are watching. And by the way, the Son's job is to judge whether this is done or not at the end. So you're going to get judged on whether you've done this or not. That adds even more weight. And then finally, he reminds him that Christ's kingdom has come and is still coming, right? By the appearing and his kingdom. If nothing else, what we get at the end of this is this is going to be really important stuff. This is not in the realm of suggestion, but this is the realm of command. And so in the vein of that, and by the way, when I hear something like, who is the judge of the living and the dead, this is one of the most scary passages for pastors because one of the things that we are told in Scripture as those set apart to preach the word is that we will be held accountable even more. There will come a point when I die and I stand before my maker and I will be accountable not just for my actions, but for how well I have proclaimed the word to you, Stowe Presbyterian Church. There's an extra weight to it. Again, not elevated or lowered, but just this was your job. How did you do? And so we are told that this is a weighty thing. And it's important that we understand that as we go in. And then next, Paul gives, in one verse, five imperatives. These are strong imperatives in the original languages. These aren't suggestions. He says this, number one, preach the word. Paul considers preaching of the word to be the most important task for Timothy and for all of those who are leaders in the church. There's nothing else that you're going to do, Timothy, that's more important. It's not going to be how you work as the head of staff, as a pastor. It's not going to be if you can make a great website. It's not going to be if you can get the finances in order. It's not going to be if you can double the membership or if giving can go up or if we can have 64 small groups in a month. None of those things are as important as preaching the word. That's the first and foremost thing. One of the commentaries I read said that Paul thinks of preaching as the signature of all Christian ministry. To go out and to proclaim the word of God, the gospel, the good news to the people is the thing that we as Christians ought to do. Whether that is as as a preacher set apart like this standing in front of you or whether that's in your own spheres as people that are teaching the word to the world around you. It's the number one thing we do as Christians. There's no doubt about it. If if you've ever studied the history and the life of of John Calvin, um, 
It's interesting, you know, Calvin is one of the, the people that is predominantly responsible for forming a lot of our Reformed theology today and what we believe and how we organize what we believe. And, and you know, if you're, if you're a Reformed Presbyterian, you most likely at some point have heard the name of Calvin before. Calvin was a famous theologian that kind of came out of, he eventually ended up in Geneva, Switzerland. But one of the things people don't know is when he got to Geneva, he did not want to be a preacher. Calvin's dream was to just never deal with people and to just close himself off and just write. You know, maybe people can read his stuff and preach off of it if they want to, but he didn't want to be a preacher. And so when he got to Geneva, William Farrell, who's one of the leaders there, actually commanded him to preach. He came to Calvin and said, listen, you can't. This is not how the Christian leadership life works. Here's what he said. Here's a quote from Calvin directly in one of the commentaries on his Psalms. He says this, he, Farrell, proceeded to utter an imprecation, like a curse, that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance to preaching the word of God. <laughs> so Calvin gets there. He's like, I am a, I'm a theological leader. I'm a pastoral figure, but I really don't want to be a preacher. I just want to write and study and put out articles for people to consume and do whatever they want with. And that's kind of how I want to live my life. And he says, no, 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 no. If you're a leader, you are to preach the word of God. And by the way, cursed is your retirement and anything you try to do if you don't jump into this task. And so Calvin became a preacher. And all of us are better for it. His sermons have inspired unbelievable amounts of writing and study and works. And they've advanced our faith in great ways because he took up the task. Preaching is a serious call. The teaching of the word is a serious call. We are commanded to go out and to be teachers of the word of God. <clears throat> you cannot get around it. Well, I'm just not an eloquent speaker. Tough. Sorry if that sounds harsh, but it is. You as a follower of Christ have a command, a demand of your Lord that says you are to go out and you are to proclaim the good news and teach the word. To people. Second, be ready. This is the second imperative. Be ready in season and out of season. This one kind of makes me laugh. What does he mean by in season and out of season? Like I know there's a deer hunting season, but is there is there like a Bible preaching season? That'd be great. Like Vince, you are a pastor, you are to preach the gospel for these six months out of the year, and then it's the off season. Like sports. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Just take off six months every year. No, he doesn't mean time-wise. There's no season where we don't preach the word. You know, like, well, you get the month of December off. It's Christmas. No. What he's talking about is less an idea of time and more an idea of attitude. We are to be ready at all times. Whether we are feeling it or not. Whether we feel adequate or not whether it excites us or tires us and makes us weary, whether it costs us or not, whether you'll be mocked by the people around you or not, whether your family and friends at Thanksgiving want to hear it or not. Now I'm getting into meddling. We are called to be in and out of season. We do not get to take breaks. There's this fascinating phenomenon for pastors. And if you talk to a bunch of pastors, a lot of them will tell you this. Believe it or not, this is going to shock you. There are weeks where I do not want to come here and preach the word of God. 
oh, gasp. Somebody's genuinely shocked. I can't believe we voted for that guy. Right? I'm a human being. There are weeks of fatigue and tired. This is kind of one of those weeks. This wasn't particularly bad. But this was a week where Graham's class was quarantined. We couldn't send him off to school. And so we had to tag team and kind of work in the margins and late at night. And this is one of those weeks where I would just, I would love to be napping right now. That would be great, right? In and out of season. And here's what's interesting for pastors. They'll tell you this. The weeks where they feel least prepared and ready to preach, and they get up with whatever they've got, and they lay it out, and the Lord does something. Those are the weeks where we get emails of like, wow, that affected me. And that's a beautiful thing as a pastor because it tells you that it's not you doing it. There's weeks where I walk off the stage where I'm like, that was a great sermon. You did a good job there. I'll be like, you guarantee there's going to be people calling me this week. Like, you nailed that. People are going to be reached. People are going to want to be baptized. We're going to have to have a baptist, baptism service next Sunday because there's going to be new people. People outside heard somehow. And they're, you know, someone in Korea on the internet listened and they already bought their plane ticket to come. And, I, and not a single person makes a comment to me for that whole day. And then there's weeks where I get up here and I'm like, what were you doing? I think you were half asleep through that one. And people will talk about how it touched their lives and there was a word. That's how you know that it's the Lord working and not yourself. It's a weird thing. Ask if you have pastor friends in your families or whatever, ask them about it. It's, it's, it's true almost universally. It's a weird thing. We are to be ready in and out of season to proclaim. When you think you are your most inadequate, your least effective, your least prepared, your most tired, when you're worried so much about the cost of what someone will think if you go out and you proclaim God's truth and his word, trust me. There is, there is something waiting there. There are times that he will use you that you would have never thought if you are just faithful and you proclaim. Out of season, proclaiming of the word. The Lord and the Spirit just does things sometimes. Not every time, but often. It's one of the greatest experiences as a pastor. And as a, as a follower of Christ, when we go out and we, we talk about the gospel, it's one of the greatest experiences as a Christian too. To know that, man, you, you did nothing here. This wasn't you at all. The Lord's just working through you. We are called to do it in and out of season. And then we get these two next ones. Three and four. Imperative three, reprove. And imperative four, rebuke. What's the difference between reprove and rebuke? I would argue that they're very similar. To me, the difference is the severity in some way. Um, reproving is something that we do when we see someone kind of making an error. You know, um, one, of the, one of the most annoying elements of reproof in my life is, is my dear wife is a lover to death. She's a grammar Nazi to the core. And, and Britta corrects me when I speak all the time. I guarantee you I'll go home today and she'll be like, you actually said this out loud in your sermon today. And I won't even know what it was. And it drives me nuts. It really does. But it also makes me better. Right. Now, my poor grammar is not a sin. It's not some deep-rooted thing that, that she has to weed out because I am, I'm a sinful human. and I need. No, it's just, it's just a thing that makes me better. And so she reproves me. It's a gentle leading. It's a correction of sorts that says, you know, this, you said this and it was okay. You could have said it better this way. Right? Me and him, it's him and I. He and I. <laughs> Roger in the back is a grammar Nazi too. I've learned that over the past few weeks. If you have one in your life, 
and they drive you nuts, just they're making your lives better. And she's going to hold it over me that I said that the next time. She's going to be like, you said in that sermon, I'm allowed to do this now. Right? <laughs> Reproving is, the, is a gentle correction. It is not necessarily this like, deep-rooted sin that we have to weed out. Rebuking, on the other hand, is. Right? There are times in the lives of, 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 our, of us as followers of Christ where we need to be rebuked. And here's what stinks. None of us like to be reproved or rebuked. But here's the reality. If we believe that we are sinners, and in order to accept Christ, I think the first step is to acknowledge ourselves to be sinners, right? Because otherwise we don't need a Savior. We believe we're sinners. We believe that sin is in the midst of our lives, that it stains us, that it shapes us for the worse, that it causes us to be rotten from the core apart from the grace of Christ. Then wouldn't it make perfect sense that we are in constant need of reproof and rebuke? We need it. It is essential to the life of the Christian to be reproofed and rebuked and to reproof and rebuke others. And I am so tired, so tired of the loving and don't judge arguments. We, we can't rebuke people because it's not loving. You know, we're not supposed to judge. Don't, don't, be, don't judge. God's the only one that can judge. God's the only one that can ultimately judge. But we are to judge right and wrong and to declare what is right and wrong. One of my closest friends is a pastor out in Boston. And, and I would pray to God that if he ever knows of me going down a road that I shouldn't be going down, that he would pull me out, hit me with a freight train if he has to. I don't want him to just approve of what I say or do or think because he's loving the way that our friends and our, our loved ones love us is by making sure that as followers of Christ, we become the best versions of ourselves. And in order to do that, we need to be reproofed and rebuked. And we need to do it to others. And so we need to get over this idea that if we offend somebody, if we hurt their feelings, that it's always terrible. It is not. Read your Bible. Jesus offends people all the time. And he's perfect. Argument settled. Now, here's the key, and it's the fifth imperative. We exhort with complete patience and teaching. How are we supposed to reprove and rebuke people? This is a key element. If you enjoy, if any part of you enjoys rebuking and reproofing, you've got some repenting to do. There's a sign guy on my street. He's the most avid Trump supporter I've ever, I've never actually met him, but I can just tell. And this is not a political conversation. I don't care, if, you know, whatever, Republican, Democratic. It's just a point. He might as well be on the other fence. He has these signs up that are clever little signs. He's got a vinyl guy that he, like, has on retainer, I swear. Because he changes them, like, weekly or biweekly. You know, like, tired of Biden yet? You know, um, forgetful Biden. You know, like, you reap what you sow, like regretting your vote, like all these kinds of things. And you could tell he's rebuking and reproofing anybody who might have voted for Biden in this presidential election. But man, he's not doing it out of a sense of, of desire for, for change. He just loves it. He loves it. We know that sometimes we're like that, right? You like to be the, the corrector. Whether you do it in person or whether you do it in social media or, or a little nice little you know, card that is passive aggressive that you mail to someone's house, Right? If you enjoy it, that's a sinful part of us. 
If you want to post some, some fact-finding thing or whatever on social media because you want to get the responses and you like to kick it up and you like to be the first with the clever comment, that's, that's the sinful part of us. Rebuking should be something that we do not enjoy doing, but we do it because it helps ultimately. Right? When we talk about church discipline, the two verses that we always bring up are Matthew 18 and Galatians 6. Matthew 18 is the process for how we restore somebody. Galatians is the, the attitude. It tells us that we don't practice church discipline to, to come down on somebody, to push the thumb down and to get them out of the church. We practice discipline so that they might be restored. The goal is always love and care and restoration. And so Paul, knowing this, he says, listen, Timothy, you have to reproof, you have to rebuke, but you have to exhort with complete patience and teaching. I say this not to brag, but just because it's the reality of my life right now. I do this every day at home with my two-year-old. I can't just yell at him for doing something wrong. He doesn't know that it's wrong. The only possible way that we can move forward is for me to exhort and be patient in teaching. I can't just yell at him for doing something. I have to explain to him what is right and wrong. He's got to learn it. Right? Imagine if, that, if my kid just threw food and I was like, no, and just left him there and walked away. Poor two-year-old, like sitting in his strapped-in chair by himself. No, you have to explain and lead and show what the right way is. And man, do you have to do it patiently. I think God gives us children to train us for how we should treat other people in the world. When we reproof and rebuke people, we do it with an exhorting patience. And we teach. We don't just say, you are wrong here. How dare you think this way? How dare you act this way? But we come at them and we say, listen, this is the way that life ought to work. I'm coming to you because you're a brother and a sister and I love you. And let me help you and let me walk with you. And so he tells Timothy, you've got to do that. You've got to exhort people. You've got to be an encourager. The way that we reproof and rebuke people is not just by pointing and wagging the finger. Because by the way, we're just as bad as they are. But instead, we come with a measure of grace and concern. And everything about our demeanor and attitude, as we teach people, should suggest that our desire is that they will become better, fuller versions of themselves. And live into the person that God has called them to be. So Paul gives this charge to Timothy. You have to preach. When it's uncomfortable, when it's comfortable, it doesn't matter. You have to correct people even when it hurts. You have to call out sin and remove it from the body like cancer. Not the person, but the sin. And you can't lose your head. You've got to be encouraging and patient. But why? He tells us in verse 3. We live in a sinful world. Human nature... Ours and the non-Christian human nature, it doesn't matter, we are all stained by sin, is to move away from all things true and good. If left to your own devices, you will naturally have a bent towards moving away from truth and goodness. You will, I will, all of us will. It's just part of the sinful world in which we live in. One day Christ will come back and we won't have to think or worry about these things anymore, but right now we do. And so we have to have these things in our lives in order to grow. Paul knows this. He says this, there will come a time, right, when people will not endure sound teaching and having itching ears, this, I love this, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Name me a biblical heresy and I will find you a church that preaches it. 
tell me anything. I want to live this way, and I know the Bible is a little, tells me not to do it, but this is what I want to do. I will find you a church that tells you it's okay to live that way. What have we done as a world? We have sought out teachers who will tell us what we want to hear rather than tell us what the truth is. Paul's a savant. He knew it was coming. There will come this time. They'll accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. You name the passion, I'll find you the church. I'm not kidding. I, come, come to me. I'll find it for you. I'll probably find it for you in a 10-mile radius. It's not online. You want to be told that you can do whatever you want with your life, that you are the autonomous person and that it's your free choice and free reign to how you live? I'll find you the church that lifts that up as long as you put enough tithing dollars in their coffers. They'll tell you. They'll bless you. They'll bless whatever you want. Not here. Sorry. Not sorry. We live in a world that increasingly would do that. And if we see it happening in our churches then certainly we see it happening in the world around us, right? If the church of Christ in this world has failed to proclaim the truth and has started to move in the directions of teaching whatever suits people, well, then where else can we be safe? We are called to be the people that preach soundly because there is this time, we are now in it, that people will just do whatever they want. They're not going to want to listen to sound doctrine anymore because they're not used to hearing it. We are the ones who are to go into the world and to make disciples and to proclaim the truth. Instead, what we do is we sit in our churches and we shake our fists at the world outside that just increasingly abandons Christ. And we're just so mad. How can they believe this? How can they think this way? It makes no sense. Well, to them it does. Because no one's telling otherwise. Unless you come into this room or you tune in online, you're not hearing a word that is being preached. You hear what I'm saying to you this morning, and you're going to go home, and you're going to churn on it. But the reality is most people aren't even listening. How are they going to know unless we go out and we proclaim and we speak of the truth and the beauty of how God designed the world to be, and we go against what the culture says, and we live it out, and we show them. We are called to preach. We have to be the light in a culture that is increasingly under attack inside the church and especially outside the church. It's just part of it. And so Paul calls Timothy to be a few things. He says, be sober-minded in a world that's nuts and chaos, that panics at every turn, not you. You're going to be the the calm in the storm. When everybody else is babbling about, what do we do? What do we do? How do we do this? This is happening. We we need to attack. We need to get on on social and, and go nuts on this person. We need to cancel culture this. You're the one that says, just going to take a step back and pray and think before I speak and allow the Lord to use me whenever he's ready. When I say something, it's going to be well thought out. I'm not going to be the first to speak, but I'm going to be the last. That's what he's telling Timothy to be. Endure suffering when you preach the word and people come against you. You you need to deal with it. You need to be strong in the midst of it. Do the work of the evangelist and fulfill your ministry. And Paul knew that if Timothy did this, it would produce a fruit and be worthwhile for him. And so that's why he accounts in the last few verses his own experience. A lot of times we read this and we think of it as Paul bragging. He's not. Paul is talking to a younger pastor as one whose time is coming to an end. And he's just trying to get Timothy to understand what I think the Lord would want all of us to understand. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And so he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've done the things that I am calling you to do. And by the way, if you do these things like I'm calling you to do, here's what happens. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What's he saying? We do this faithfully. We endure. We go out and we proclaim. People might hate us for it. Tough cookies. Because in the end, you're going to be all right. All it takes is a little bit of foresight. The Lord will vindicate you if, you if you preach and proclaim faithfully. If you are out in your spheres and your jobs, and don't tell me, oh, I can't talk about Jesus in my... You, you can. You might have to get creative. Right? There, are, there are legal issues and things and we obey the law, but there, you can talk about your faith outside of this, this building. You can Maybe one day we'll have a Sunday school class on the legalities of what you can or can't do in the workplace. We'll bring some attorneys in. That'd be great. I guarantee you a lot of us have misunderstandings about what you can't or can't do. It might cost you, but you can preach and proclaim the truth of God. Now, do I want you to go to work tomorrow and stand up on your desk and start reading? No. If you want to do that, let me know, and I'll give you some suggested verses. You know, maybe not Leviticus. But, but don't do that. But what we do is we, we look for opportunities. We look for individuals. A lot of times, those who aren't set apart to preach like this, we're called to do it in individual conversations with our loved ones and our family and our coworkers. We look for opportunities. You know those times where the thing that you would love to say is, well, let me tell you about this. But we shy away because we're worried about what they'll think. You know those opportunities exist. When you go to your office tomorrow, when you go to wherever it is you go if you're retired tomorrow, you know that there's those opportunities. And we know when we shy away from them. We feel it a little bit as Christians, don't we? You ever have that uncomfortableness where you're like, I could have talked about Christ there, but I didn't. And it just like irks us. Step out in faith and see what he does. The Lord will be at work in the midst of that. We are to go and we are to make disciples. We are to train people up in what God says. As Christians, we are called to be ones who live lives of grace. We are called to endure suffering. We are called to submit ourselves to the authority of God and his word and what he says. And we are called to go out and to proclaim it. The number one task that you have is to go out and to proclaim the good news. You are not primarily a salesman, a nurse, a lawyer, an engineer. You are not primarily a spouse, a husband, or a wife. You are not primarily even a parent. Those are not your first duties. Your first and foremost job on this earth, why you were put here, is to proclaim the good news. And where he's put you, and what he has you doing vocationally or family-wise in your life, is just a mission field for where you are to do that. Those things are secondary. They're part of the creative glory of God that we have all these different vocations that fit the giftedness that we have. We can go do the things that God has called us to do. Whether you are going to do surgery tomorrow morning, first thing at 7 a.m., or whether you're going to bag groceries after this, the Lord has put you there to proclaim him. That is why you exist in that workspace. Your call to proclaim the truth is no less intense than mine or any other pastor. 
It's just the, the way in which you're called to do it. You can't get around it. Let's pray. Lord, some passages are just harder to swallow than others. Lord, we, we admit that in our day-to-day lives, we are hesitant and afraid to talk about your truth and your word and your gospel and your good news. It's awkward. People may not respond the way we want them to. People may reject us. People may look at us differently. People may have a certain view of us that we don't want to shatter. Maybe we just don't want people to think we're weird. Maybe we just don't know the words to say. Lord, we come to you this morning and we repent of those excuses. Because that's what they are. We acknowledge that we, we have heard your call and your command to be doers of your word. And people that proclaim. Lord, we ask that you would convict us. That we wouldn't just feel the weight of that command here in this room and then go out and have lunch and forget about it. But that we would this week be compelled to speak when you want us to speak. Lord, give us those opportunities as scary of a prayer as that is, put us in those places this week where we just, we just know that we're supposed to say something and give us the strength and the courage and the words, most importantly, to proclaim you and proclaim you well, that the people of this world might hear your truth in a world full of lies. Be with us, guide us. We pray that our efforts would bear fruit because there is nothing more beautiful as a follower of Christ to be used by you. And know that it's been effective. What a joy that brings us and spurs us on to to speak more. And so we ask for those first steps. We ask that you give us the power and strength. Be with us this week as we go out as your people to be on mission. As the book of Acts 1.8 tells us. That we would be your witnesses in our Judeas and our Samarias and through the ends of the earth. We love you and praise you. And all his people said.